you would, take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel. If you're able to come out, we have obviously in-person services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. And we would love to see it more filled up each and every week. So if you can make it, we're taking as many precautions as we can. We'd love to have you be here in person with us. Mark 1, 35 through 38. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Four times um, Jesus does this. It doesn't say he's praying, but it's an indication, a good indication he probably was. He often retreated to a wilderness type situation in a desert or deserted place to be alone or be with the disciples. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Here's our phrase. For that is why I came out. That's our study tonight. The why behind everything Jesus does and did and what, what we would do. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Armed with every ingredient for success, Samuel Pierpont Langley set out in the early 1900s to be the first man to pilot an airplane. Um, by his peers, he was highly regarded. He was a senior officer at the Sasonian Institute. He was a mathematic professor who also at times at time had worked at Harvard. Um, he was by his friends, considered one of the most powerful men in the world. He had powerful friends in government and in business like Andrew Carnegie and Alexander Graham Bell, who were his friends. Uh, most people couldn't have got this grant, but Langley did. He got a grant for $50,000 in 1903 and uh, from the War Department. They found his project very important. And they gave him that. That was quite a bit of money. That would be way more than that nowadays, probably worth millions. Um, he pulled together with that money um, what he would, I would call the best minds of the day, a veritable dream team of talent and knowledge and skill. And Langley and his team used the finest materials. Um, they were so excited and so was America at the time. The press followed him everywhere trying to report everything he was doing. Everyone thought for sure he was a guarantee um, to be able to be the first person to meet his goal of flying an airplane um, with the people and resources that he had gathered together. He was a sure success, but he wasn't. A few hundred miles away, a far different situation, was brothers, Wilbur and Orville Wright. Um, they were working on their own flying machine. Um, their passion was just as intense as Mr. Langley and his team, and they inspired a number of people in their little community in Dayton, Ohio, uh, to come out and help them all that they could. In contrast, Orville and uh, Wilbur Wright had no funding, no funding from the government. Um, they had no grants. They had no high-level connections. They weren't connected to anyone in the government or any big business person. They had no one financially backing them. But their little team um, did not have the finest materials. They built the first airplane and worked together in a used bicycle shop. 
um, to make their vision come to reality. But believe it or not, from the two groups of people who worked on the same thing at the same time, on December 17, 1903, a small group witnessed a man take the first flight in all of history, and it was Orville and Wilbur Wright. And the question was, how do they succeed where the others failed? They, the other group had better equipment, better funded, better educated. Everyone on the other team had a high degree, at least a college degree, if not more. No one on Orville and Wilbur Wright's team had any of those things. As I read more and more about the two episodes, I found that they were, both teams were highly um, motivated. Both had strong work ethics. Both had brilliant scientific minds putting it all together. Both pursued the same goal. But the one major difference was this. The Wright brothers started with the question, why? Why they wanted... It wasn't just the what of making a plane and how they were going to make it fly. But they stopped and took time to ask the question. They started with why. The personal computer revolution was beginning to brew, if you remember, if you're old enough as I am. Back in the 1970s, Steve Wozniak built the Apple One. I think it was about this big. Um, Back then, personal computers were tools for business. And they were computers that were too complicated to be in the price range of most individuals back in the day. But Wozniak was a man who was not driven by money. Instead, he envisioned a more nobler, as he would say it, a more nobler uh, purpose for his technology. It was his way of allowing the little man in business to compete with the big corporations by having a computer that would do many of the same functions that only really gigantic computers could do. And now he would bring that possibility to the little man in a little business so that he could do virtually many of the same things. So he got his best friend, Steve Jobs, together, and they began to work on it. Their first year of business, they had only one product. It was the Apple One. And in the first year, they made a million dollars. Their second year, their company made... $10 million. The fourth year, they made $100 million. And the sixth year, which would be in the mid-80s, early mid-80s, they made a billion dollars. And by that time, had 3,000 employees. If you read the story and listen to them, um, the reason that the the, uh, personal computer revolution started with Apple, and by the way, they weren't the only ones making personal computers. They had other competitors at the time. But you ask them, and here's what they would say. We started with why. Why did we want to build a personal computer? August 28th, 1963, a quarter of a million people uh, descended onto the wall in the mall in Washington, D.C., to hear Martin Luther King give his famous I Have a Dream speech. Uh, the organizers did not send out 250,000 invitations. They did not have websites. They didn't have social media so that everybody could know the when and the where. But they were able to get a quarter of a million people at the right place on the right day at the right time without any of those things. Dr. King, if you've ever heard him speak or heard any of his speeches or read them, 
was not the only person alive during that time that knew what had to change to bring about civil rights in America. He had, and I've read a lot of his literature, he had many ideas about what needed to happen, but so did a lot of other people. I mean, there were others, in fact, a number that you probably wouldn't know their names, like him, who shared his vision of America. Many of them, though, gave up because it was difficult and they had so many defeats, and you know as well as I do that when you experience defeat after defeat, it gets painful. And the ability to continue head on against such odds day after day takes something more than knowing what needs to be changed. Dr. King, as I read him, knew that it was more than just what needed to change and how they were going to change it. He had to have more. He wanted to get others who believed what he believed. So the how of achieving civil rights and what needed to be done, even amongst his followers, was debatable. Not everybody agreed. Some people thought there should be violence to get it done. And for him, it was in no way he would never do violence. He was going the nonviolent way. He followed Jesus in that way. But the one thing that people had in common on that mall that day with 250,000 people there, um, they believed in the why and what they were doing. Uh, as I look at it, my opinion is Martin Luther King's gift was his ability to put his why into words. Showing up that day at the Lincoln Memorial was one of the what's that people who believed his why were willing, willing to do. So let me say it to you this way. His I have a dream speech was not I have a plan speech. He did not take the time in a relatively short speech, to lay out all the what's they were going to do. It was not a 12-step plan. Here's how we're going to implement change in racial justice. He didn't do any of that. He did not talk about that. But what he talked about was what I believe. And that's why on that day, out of the 250,000 people, 25% of the people who showed up on that day were white. And I say that because the reason was that belief, the belief that he had and he wanted his followers to have was not about a black America, it was about a shared America. And see, that was a cause, a why, that anybody and everybody could get behind and it didn't matter what the color of your skin was. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, started a movement about 30 A.D. He gathered a group of non-professional, untrained disciples who were from backwater town, in, in towns in Galilee and the outer reaches of what would be called the north part of Israel. They were not from the southern part. They weren't from Jerusalem. They weren't from the area of the temple. And the religious leaders never really accepted them. And, and they were... At the same time, though, vastly popular among the people. And he was, Jesus was one who claimed to be the Messiah. He said that's why he's come. But do you, you know the answer to this, I, I believe. You know Jesus wasn't the only one in 50 to 70 years around his lifetime that claimed to be the Messiah. There were many of them historically. So he wasn't the only one claiming it. And he wasn't the only one saying that he was the king of Israel. So what made him so different? Why was it that Jesus changed the world? Um, I would tell you it's because Jesus started with why. 
And, and I would say a why that was greater than any of the people that I've mentioned so far. I mean, infinitely greater. His was a supernatural, divine why. His why would trump and supersede all other whys. And it would ultimately be the ultimate why. The why that would control all other whys. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. That's why, why I think it's so important. Because behind everything Jesus said and behind everything Jesus did was the reason why he came. And it, it pressed him. And I, and I want you to say, that's the pattern I want us as a church to have. That's the pattern I would implore you as an individual Christian or as a family to have. That everything we do, small and great, needs to be done with the motivation that Jesus had. And although he came in his role in the why question and in the story of God was redemptive, which none of us do, we still can use the pattern of Jesus to emulate him in our lives and live by the why that he lived by. In our text, it's obvious, and I mentioned it as the phrase that we're keying in on tonight. In Mark 1, Jesus says, for that is why I... See the text? We're going we're gonna to amplify it. See the what in the text and the where in the text and the how in the text? All those things are in there, but they're all surrounded by and key in on the one statement, we're doing this, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is what I'm going to do, and it's all based on this. This is why I came. Now, Jesus is going to use the same little Greek structured phrase in a number of other places, uh, one in Luke's gospel and two in John's, because all the writers of the gospel pick up on how foundational and, and radically important what Jesus' goal was, what his why was. Let me read them to you, and you can mark them down for further study on your own. One is Luke 4, 43. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent, here's the phrase, for this purpose. It's the identical phrase in ours that says why, because that's what it means. Why, for this purpose, for this reason. Jesus says, here's what I I have to go here, here's what I have to do, here's how I'm going to do it, and it's all based on this. The purpose I came. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Listen to this. His why never changes, no matter how bad things in his life get. No matter how difficult his circumstances. For Jesus, uh, racial tension wouldn't change his why. COVID-19 would not change his why. A diagnosis of cancer would not change his why. His what can change, but the why never does. And here's what he says. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? In other words, wow, has everything fallen apart and changed? No. You know why? Because he expected it. And here's the reason. Because the why, the why would told him how to expect things and what to expect. He says, Father, should I say, save me from this hour? No. So how do you face difficulties in life and respond right? You will do that if you have the right why. But if your life is all just about what and how with no why, you won't know what to do when difficulties and trials come in your life. Jesus says, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, but, super big contrast word, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Here's what he says. See, the most difficult, overwhelming circumstances here, you know what they are? They're part of the purpose. It's all part of the why. 
So I don't have to run from it. I don't have to lose my joy over it. I don't have to throw my hands up in the air and let everything get, you know why? Because I have a purpose. And inside that purpose are all kinds of things that I've learned from Jesus and difficulties and problems with people and other things are part of it. John 18, 37. He's having a conversation right before they crucify him, flog him and crucify him with Pilate. Pilate said, so you're a king? Jesus says, you say I am a king. Listen to this. Now watch the framework. For this purpose I was born. So everything about his life, how he came into the world as an infant, how he came lowly, shepherds, Mary and Joseph, angel, all of that. He said, from the very beginning of my life, and now he's going to go to the other end. He says, for this purpose I was born, and this purpose I have come into the world to what? Bear witness to the truth. See, Pilate, I'm standing before you. You're going to have me flogged, and you're going to have me crucified. And Jesus says, and that's part of my purpose. See? So he doesn't get scared about Pilate. He's not begging for release. He's not throwing it. No. You know why? Because Jesus is living out the story of God. That's his why. And he says from the beginning to the very end, everything falls into the category of why. So Jesus started with why, and he finished with why, and everything in between was about why. First and foremost, it's the framework of his life and ministry. But the question is, is that true of you? Is that true of you? Is, is why, do you have Jesus' why? If so, does that make a difference in the jobs that you choose to have? The relationships that you choose to engage in? Does it make a difference in how you spend your money, what you see is valuable, what you see is priority? Does it alter your calendar? Does it change how you relate to friends? See, what is your why? That's where we have to start. What is your why? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you up late at night? What would make you give sacrifice? What would make you stick at something that you'd rather get rid of or quit at? And where or who do you get it from? This is my big concern for our kids growing up. That they don't have Jesus' why, and they're certainly not getting it from him. What is the purpose behind everything you and I say and do? From this little text in Mark 1, 35 through 38, I came to this conclusion and I formed this principle why controls everything, whether your why is a good one or it's a bad one. If you live to, and your why is, the goal is, I want to be famous, I want to be rich, I want to have popular, I want to get all the pleasure I can. I wanna, I, there's a million alternatives for why you can exist and why you're here and what the purpose of your life is. But there's only one right one. And you're going to find in this text that why controls everything. It controls the what in your life, the how in your life, the where in your life, the who in your life, and the when in your life. It controls all of them, whether you're doing it for the right one or the wrong one. So regardless of what you do in our lives, our why, our driving purpose, our cause, our beliefs, they should never change. No matter what we're doing, the why should remain the same as it was for Jesus. So let me give you a definition first, and then we'll get into the text. The why is this. It can be defined our beliefs, our convictions, hear me, narrative-wise, the story that we live in. 
What do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? Have you ever noticed? Look at the very first verses of Mark. Ready? Mark 1. What does Mark do that Luke and Matthew do not do? Or I should maybe put it the other way. What do Matthew and, and, and Luke do at the beginning of their gospel that Mark does not? What's missing? Can I say it that way? It's not true, but what, that's the way it is. What's missing? There's no what? There's no genealogy. There, what else? There's no story. There's no Christmas in this one. Right? There's no stories of his birth. There's no kid childhood thing in the temple when he's 12. How he scared his mom to death. None of that's in here. And, and have you ever said this? Why? Because when you're writing a biography in the first century, and believe it or not, I've bored myself enough to read some Roman biologies, I mean, uh, biographies to know that the pattern was that if you want to make someone to be great that other people should follow, then you're going to tell awesome stories about their birth and their life and heroic things they did and where they came from and the royal family that they come all from, their ancestry, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to do all of that because you're going to build this person up. Mark does none of it. Not on a human level. But you know what he does? Ready? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he say about him? Whose father is he? He's not, Joseph is not mentioned here. Mary's not mentioned. There's no genealogies. Who's his father? God. You can't get any more royal, powerful than that. But he's not done. He wants to say it again to us. And look over at chapter 1. And verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came out by the water, immediately saw the heavens open, being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And what? It's not just Mark telling you that Jesus is the Son of God. Who's telling you? A voice from heaven. Who is he? This is my beloved Son. And with you, I am well pleased. So what is Mark's substitute? There's no Christmas stories. There's no biography, heroic things that he did. But he wants you to know right off the bat that Jesus is not like anybody else. He is the Son of God. Look at verse 2. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you put Christ next to the Son of God. You know the word Christ means basically king. So Son of God is not just that he has deity, but he is the son of God. He is the one that 2 Samuel uh, um, prophesied that the king of Israel is called an God's son. So yeah, he is God's son in the Trinity. But really, Jewish people would more thought of it as mainly talking about Jesus being, he's the rightful king. So does he have a royal lineage? Yes. And is he the son of God? Yes. Is his father God? Yes. God says so from heaven. That's who he is. Now, what is his Why? That's where this book starts, not with the birth, not the why. Verse 2, and it's a quotation of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Not only is God's voice in this text, it's what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah 40 and 1 through 3 are the opening verses of the second half of Isaiah. You know it's divided into Isaiah 1 through 39 about all the things that happened to lead Israel up to the place where God had to punish them and bring them into captivity and exile. Chapter 40 and chapter 66 is the future about when God breaks into Israel's history again and brings them out with a new exodus to give them 
freedom and their land back to them again. These verses start that section. This is the verses that start talking about how God is going to save Israel and change everything. That's who Jesus is. That's his why. So Mark wants to say from the very beginning, you know what's going to drive Jesus and everything he does? He knows who he is in God's story. And everything he says and everything he does fits into that trajectory. Now listen, here's what we need to teach our kids. Can I make it practical? Your goal in life is not to figure out what you would like to do and what you think your abilities and talents are and go to the best college and university so that you can become great and successful and get money and be rich. That's a worldly philosophy. You're not to say, hey God, here's my story. Let me figure out how I fit you into it. No, it's completely reversed. Here's what God says. If you have the right why, you'll say this. God, here's your story. How do I fit into it? Which doesn't mean that every person growing up is going to be a missionary or a pastor or a full-time ministry. That doesn't mean that. But it means that everything you do in life, whether you are famous and rich and powerful and all those things, that you're doing it because it's driven by this story. Because there's a lot of rich people in the Bible. A lot of people who had power and sway like Daniel and others. But they lived the story out, even when it cost them greatly. They were in this story. This was their why in their lives. If you go back to our text, can I ask you to do that in Mark 1? How powerful is it when you get into God's why and make Jesus' why yours? It'll do for you what you can't have anything else do. Notice, don't run over the words. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed out to a desolate place and he prayed. Okay, now if you're taking notes, I'm going to tell you, we're going to make an application to your spiritual disciplines. Ready? Here's a common frustration. Tell me this isn't, been, isn't you now or hasn't been you before. I, would, I need to read my Bible. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I pray, I have good meaning, and maybe I'll pray in the morning, but that's it the rest of the day. Or maybe I'll pray in an emergency, but to pray in the morning and the evening, or pray really longer prayers, not because length matters as much, but, and, and have a significant prayer life, and actually have, if someone asked me an answer to prayer that I would have in my life, or man, what did you get out of the scriptures today? When's the last time I actually did something and lived out what I studied? And you would say, ah, oh, you know, I know I should say more to people who are lost at work or my friends or whatever. Oh, I should have said something today. I didn't. And you live a lot of your life like this, up and down. Have you ever, sorry the pun, you ever wonder why? Because, listen, if you see spiritual disciplines only as a what you do or how you do spirituality, If all they are to you is, this is what good Christians do, and how they do it. Well, they get their Bible out, and then they have a book that they go through, and they keep a journal, and then they have a prayer list, and they pray for it. See, if all it is is a what or a how to you, that's why you're all over the map. Because they can't sustain you. Just doing something that's a what or a how isn't going to do it. You know how many times I started a diet, what should I do? Well, I should lose weight. What should, how should I do it? Well, I should exercise and I should stop eating piles of food on my plate and pizza and everything else I like. I know the what's and the how's. 
But why? Why is it? Um, I'll give you an insight into my family and my life. My dad struggled with this a lot. And honestly, between us, it's part of the reason why he, he died. So here, here's what I thought. You want to say, Pastor Walker, you, you, in the last 10 years, you haven't lost this weight. Where'd you get it? You know what? I had the wrong why. Here's what I thought to myself, and I apologized to my wife. I said, why is it that I don't love Jesus enough and love you enough to lose the weight and have better health and so my blood pressure isn't up and I can minister better to God's people? Why, why don't I have that motivation? You know what I thought to myself? Why is it that my dad has to have this struggle and I see it wrecked his life in the end? Why do I have to see that to find the motivation? Why is it that so many pregnant women, the day they find out they're pregnant, can quit smoking, and as soon as their baby's born, they take it right back up? Why? The question is, we don't have the right why. Why, why wouldn't I have, why don't I have the motivations? Why don't I have a why? And so I said, Chris, I'm sorry that I haven't loved you better than that. In the ministry, why, why wouldn't I? And so, so here's what the Bible, here, I, I think Jesus would want us to know. I think he says this. You know what gets Jesus out of bed early in the morning? By the way, when he's already in the wilderness sleeping on rocks probably as a pillow. He's out in the desert. There's not a lot of water. He's probably not feeling the greatest. But he gets up early in the morning before it's even light and he prays. Who does that? He does. Because the why drives him to do it. It drives him to do it. It motivates him. Let me ask you this. What about your marriage relationship? You know, if you go to read all the books you want, go to every marriage conference there is, and you know what the emphasis on every one of them is? What and how. This technique, if you could communicate this way with your spouse, and let me tell you this, get your finances in order. Those are all good things. And they'll tell you how to do this and how to have a good fight and how to handle this and this is how you handle your sexual life and this is how you do this and how you, how, the parenting books, they're all the same. And not because there aren't good ideas and tools and techniques. There's a place for that and they're good things. But most time there is no why to it. There's no, there's no motivation behind it. So you say, oh yeah, I need to have time where I read the Bible and pray with my family and that lasts for two weeks and it stops. Because all it was was a What? And a how when you bought the book. But there was no why behind it. Not for God or your family too often. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that you can choose two ways to live out your Christian life. From the outside in or the inside out. And if you had circles, I'd have why, what, how. The inside is the why. And then we figure out Once we have the why, it expresses itself in the what, and then I go about methodologies and the how I do it. But if you're living the other way, you see the why is going to be on the outer circle, and on the inside will be the what and the how. Why? Because that's what works pragmatically. And that's how we handle our spiritual disciplines. That's how we handle our marriage relationships. But if you read Ephesians 5, the, the techniques are... And, and the other things are not that prevalent. You know what's prevalent? Do this to your wife. Love her this way. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. That's what you do when you're in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as Christ submitted. That's the why behind it all. Why do you come to church? Why did you come tonight? 
Well, Pastor Walker, I, I want to hear the Bible. And, I, and good Christians do that. And I'm a member of this church. Those are good, but they're not wise. They're not wise. Where is the why in your individual life? The why is the lens to which Jesus did and said and saw everyone and everything. Notice the text. Go back to it. Simon says, listen to this. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. But here was Jesus' why. You know what mattered to him first? God, then people. So everyone can be looking for you, but that doesn't take precedent of my time with God. So I'm not going to say, I'm never going to, Jesus said, uh, no matter how busy I was, and there were days in Jesus' life that from the time he got up to the time he went to bed, he was busy healing people, touching people, preaching, preaching all day long, all the time. But it never changes why. What he does changes. Notice in the text, here's his what's in the text. See it? Twice it says, I'm preaching. I came to preach. That's what I came to do. Now, now watch. This is going to control the what and the where. So he says, let's go to all the other towns. Because the what is, I preach. The where is, where everybody I need to get to in the Galilee area. That's why we have Mosaic Baptist Church. Because God says that he loves the up and out and he loves the down and out. We're middle class by and large in Hamilton and in other places. It's not always that way. And so we've gone to places where people are high income and people are low income. And we've gone, why? Because that's what Jesus does. That's what he did. And people, Jesus loves people from all the nations. And so we go to those places and we have countries that we go to outside of America. Why do we do that? Why do we have a headquarters? Because isn't that cool that we can just buy that place down there and Pastor Ray goes down? No. Yeah, we do some cool things. The what and the how, they're there. But not the why. The reason we bought those is because God cares about all the nations. And we're purposely doing that because it's an expression of the why. The shower trailer, mosaic, missions, what we do here. The discipleship, the small groups. Why did we change that? Exactly because of the why. The why that we do. It drives everything. The where, the how, the what. How is the values and principles that bring purpose, your purpose to life. The what is the actions behind everything you say and do. Do you know who Ralph Abernathy was? Ralph Abernathy was one of the right-hand men of Martin Luther King. You probably don't know him. He's not nearly as famous. But without him, Martin Luther King would have never been successful. You know why? Because Martin Luther King was a genius at the why question. But he wasn't as good at the what and the how. And that's where Robert Abernathy came in. Robert Abernathy said this. When Martin Luther King was done giving his speeches and everyone was moved by it, I came behind him and told the crowd, now let me tell you what this means for what you're going to do on Monday morning. And he put into practice and told him, hey, here's what you're going to do if we're going to ever achieve Civil rights. See, it takes both. It takes both. And so as a church, as an individual, we have to know the what and we have to know the how, but it has to always be preceded by the why in our lives. What does that mean for us? And let me close. What does that mean for us corporately as a church? This is not original with me, but I heard this quote. When a church defines itself by what, that's all it will ever be able to do. We are not, Faith Baptist Church, I do not want us to be known primarily because we have 
dramas that we do, or we have a WANA, or we do a VBS in the summer, or we have this, and this is what we have this program, or we have this ministry, we have ladies and men's and seniors and teens and young adults and faith Christian school and community events and music and nursery, and we have all these things. But they are nothing if they are not driven by why we do them. And that's why we stop doing some things and we start doing others. You know why? Because it's not about primarily about the what or the how. It's about the why. So why do we exist? We exist to be a community of disciples. A community of disciples. So why do we have D groups and small groups? Because we're trying to say this. If you're part of Faith Baptist Church, you're not just a Christian. You're a disciple. And we want to build it into a community of it. where We have a community of hundreds of people who are on the same page about what it means to follow Jesus and be like him. And we want to, and here's how we glorify God, our why. And in our statement, the why is we're disciples that want to glorify God. How do we do it? By loving him, what? Supremely. So we look at for ways that we can say with our money, with our time, with our talents, how do we make look like Jesus is who he really is, supreme above everyone and everything else? How do we demonstrate to everyone at church and everyone in our community that he is above everything and everyone? And then it says, and by, not just vertically, we do it by showing that we love others sacrificially. That's the how and the what on the horizontal level. And that controls the what the how, the where we go, who we do it with, when we do it, it controls all of it. And if you lose track of that, most times you'll completely disrail in a matter of time. Railroads in the 1800s were the, one, some of the biggest businesses in America. It was thriving. Some of the biggest companies. And then they spent so many years when they got big building more trains and laying more track. But what happened over time is they weren't ready when the 1900s came. What happened? Planes were invented. And they got so bogged down with what they did, trains, building tracks, doing what they did and how they did it, that they lost track completely of the why. And by the beginning of the 1910s and 20s, most of those companies had folded They lost everything because they lost track of the why. (laughs) That's what we need at Faith Baptist Church. That's what we're after, is we want to model our lives after Jesus and the why in his life that drove him to do everything he did. And I just want you to say tonight, Pastor Walker, I want that for my life. I want that for my children. I want that for my family. I want that to control everything. Let's pray. Father, help us. It's so easy, because most everyone does it, is to get bogged down with the what and the how. And it's not because they're not important, but they're not first. The why has to come first. Pretty soon we'll forget why we're pastors. (laughs) We'll forget why we're members. We'll forget why Jesus saved us. We'll think it's just so we can die and go to heaven. We'll forget why we teach at a Christian school. 
We'll forget why we're deacons or Sunday school teachers or we work in the children's ministry. We'll forget why and we just show up or we don't show up anymore and the commitment level can wane based on circumstances. But only the why can keep us committed and enthused and zealously, radically passionate about it. Give us the why every day, Master, that we might be more like you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.